Morning. How's everyone doing? Good? You ready for Christmas or Thanksgiving or something? Easter. Easter, okay. Wow, man, somebody's really, really uh, needs a calendar. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, obviously, the holidays are here. For, you know, for a lot of us, uh, the holidays are, are, are a great thing, and we look forward to them. Uh, it's, it is also the highest rate of domestic disturbances and calls to the police station, uh, and the reason is that we're really messy people. When you put us all in one place, boy, it's, a, it's kind of a mess. Um, it, it, holidays can be really interesting because, it, you know, during the holidays, I think a lot of us have, we begin to build, whether we want to or not, some expectations of how things are going to go and how people are going to act and uh, what's going to happen. And then reality sinks in and we, we end up with a lot of unmet expectations. And our Christmas series, which is going to start on December 3rd in two weeks, is about the unexpected king. Because when Jesus came, boy, there were a lot of expectations. Uh, and they weren't all the type of expectations that were holy or were good. And so there are a lot of people that missed the king uh, because he came in a way that was unexpected. We just got back, uh, Pastor Mark uh, mentioned this, we just got back from our elder retreat, our annual elder retreat. Uh, we uh, went to the coast and spent a couple days really uh, working on the vision for the church. We've been working on that now for a, a few months in some sessions here on Saturdays and uh, really building toward our retreat. It was a pretty amazing uh, time for us uh, to just get to spend time with each other, spend time in prayer, uh, spend time really observing and uh, sharing where we have seen God move and where God is moving is an invitation to participate in his work. And so we've been really working on that, uh, trying to be sensitive to the work of the Lord so that we will be able to discern where he's leading our church and our people uh, where we want to focus. And so that's been, that was excellent. You're going to hear a ton about that probably uh, in little bits uh, through the end of the year, but particularly starting on January 7th, uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about vision on January 7th. We'll spend a whole series, about five weeks in January and February uh, on a series that we've been working on with our missions and outreach departments. Uh, we're going to have guest pastors that are coming in to speak, uh, who are in charge of various ministries, church plants, churches in the local area, and uh, they're going to be sharing with us as well. That series is called Go, and uh, January 1st, we're going to kick off uh, an initiative this year to read the Bible together every day with our church, and so you're probably already going to see some of the slides around here. Uh, We have a very specific Bible reading plan we would like you to join in with us to do. And uh, it's one that I got to do a couple years ago. It is actually just a tremendous, tremendous plan. So not only do you get to read the Bible in a year, there's a a really, really great devotion that goes with it. And if you listen to it on the audio, he has a British accent, which automatically means he's smarter. (laughs) It's really good. So um, we're we're excited about those things. Um, Last week, uh, Nate was up and he was working on the first part of this series. And this idea where Jesus turns to his disciples and he has these really strong words about what it would look like to follow him. And essentially what he tells us is that in order to follow me, when you begin to follow me, uh, you should, if you understand the gospel and the gospel is permeating your heart and it's changing your heart, you, you will, at some point, it will grow in you that you will treasure Jesus over everything else in your life. In fact, you will treasure him so greatly 
that everything else in your life that you love will look like hate in comparison to how much you treasure Jesus. Now, the reason that's so disturbing is that most of us, if we're being really honest, do not treasure Jesus that much, which means, whoa, man, there's some growing left to do, amen? It's okay to admit that we're not a finished product, amen? Like if you walked in here and you were the perfect Christian, you are amongst strangers. Because we're messy, that's why we're here. We're a work in progress. And so uh, last week, we, we finished on this idea that nothing in your life is off limits to the Lord. That his grace and his mercy and his sacrifice and his peace and his contentment is so good that it demands everything in our life, everything. Nothing's off limits. We're gonna keep reading in Luke and we're going to get to some more of the story right after what we read last week. So we'll start in Luke 14. We'll finish this chapter off and then we'll read the beginning of Luke 15 today. Um, We're gonna keep reading and what Jesus is gonna do is he just finished explaining how we should view him. And then what he's gonna do is he's actually gonna explain to us how he views us, how he sees us. His perspective of you and I is, follows what he had given us earlier, which is what our perspective of him should be. So he's gonna say this in Luke 14, 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus, right after he says this, we're gonna hear that he's gonna have another run in with Pharisees. If you're not familiar with Pharisees, they were the religious zealots of the time. They were also an authority in uh, this Jewish culture. So uh, they were known for being uh, religious zealots, religious authorities. They also lorded that over other people. Jesus is constantly running into conflict with them. And what we will find out as you begin to study the New Testament and even as we see today is that these are essentially fake believers. They're all zeal of religion without the heart of it. They're the religious elite once again bothering Jesus. And if we're, if we're uh, very honest, as much as we could look at the Pharisees with disdain because they have the shell or the wrappings of religion, the wrappings of faith without the actual content of the heart of it, uh, it, it there's so many parallels to the pharisaical problems Jesus had in his time and the American Christian today that has all of the trappings of Christianity without the actual flesh of it, without the heart of it, has the traditions has the knowledge even, has the religion, has the boxes to check without actually having the heart of it and in essence misses everything. Just as lost as many of our countrymen are today here in the United States, whether they sit in a pew or not. Imagine asking for a candy bar and someone gives you the wrapper but it's empty. That's a large swath of religion here in America today and what we're going to read about in the Bible today. Pharisees had all the rules, all the tradition, all the saints, all the outfits. Man, did they have some outfits. You think you have your Sunday best? Woo, they had some stuff. None of the power, none of the joy, none of the grace of God. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That almost seems like a rhetorical question. In Israel, salt came from just below the Dead Sea. 
and uh, it was processed uh, two different ways. So if it was processed a certain way as they, as they brought it in, it would be used for food and obviously to season food, but you could process it another way in which it wasn't really edible. It still had a lot of zest to it, but it wasn't really edible. Uh, it was actually used, they would take it and they would put it on manure from their, from their agriculture, from their cattle, and, and it would help preserve that manure so that it could be used over time for fertilizer for the field. So there were two really important things that salt was used for, and Jesus is like, guess what? There are only two uses. If you, don't, if you can't do those two things, why would we... Collect salt that neither seasons food nor is useful for the fields. There's three things that we see Jesus inferring here about salt, and they matter to us. They matter a lot. And Jesus is trying to teach a lesson to his disciples. You're a disciple of Jesus. If you call Jesus your king, you're his disciple. Item number one stands out here about salt. Jesus is saying... If you're salt, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're supposed to be. If you're salt, it will stand out. It'll be unique. In, in a world today of pseudo-Christianity and, and, and new age religion and, and morality is all subjective and you do you and I'll do me, if you follow Christ holy, you're gonna stand out. It's gonna be different. You're not even gonna, if you're following Jesus, you will not neatly fit into any political box or social norm, any average American life. Very little of your life should seem normal to the outside world. In fact, if it does seem normal to people who don't know Jesus, I would tell you that actually means you're not standing out, which means you're not salt. In here, you're with family, but out there, you're a weirdo. You should be. I mean, read the things that Jesus calls his disciples to do. It's not normal. It stands out like salt does. Secondly, salt. It'll stand out. Secondly, it'll make a difference. Salt makes a difference. You put salt on food, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah? Too little or too much makes a difference. One author said about this passage in the Bible, about Christians making a difference, said this, this, to make a difference, requires careful planning, willing sacrifice, and unswerving commitment to Christ's kingdom. You and I were called to make a difference. You and I were called as disciples of Jesus to make a difference. We were given the Great Commission. We are to go out into all nations, baptizing and teaching them all that Jesus taught his apostles. We are called to make an impact. In fact, so much so that last year, when we came back from our elder retreat, and we began to uh, work through and rewrite the values of the church, the long-term, not gonna change values of the church, one of those values is the word impact. And it says this, if you go get our, our values from the lobby, it says this, we want to be known for vulnerably living out the gospel in everyday relationships to make a kingdom impact in our circles of influence, neighborhoods, workplaces, and families. Jesus said, salt makes a difference. You're my disciple, you make a difference. And here's what he said that is probably the thing that makes us ponder and pause for a moment and do a little bit of introspection. He said, listen, salt, stands out and it makes a difference and if 
you don't have an impact, if you, if you don't have distinctiveness, if, if these things don't exist, then salt would be useless. In fact, what he's really inferring here is it might not actually be salt. Because it's actually impossible for salt to lose its flavor. Uh, salt is a stable compound. It doesn't change. It's, it's still salt. You put salt in the cupboard and you wait a year and you get it out, guess what? It's still salty. It's a spoiler alert, right? Two years from now, it's, it's still salty. It's, it's not changing. It's still salty, if it's salt. So if it doesn't make a difference and it doesn't stand out, then the question is, is it actually salt? It would need to change at a molecular level to not be salt. Now, salt can be diluted by the presence of other things that are non-essential, so much so that you can't taste it anymore and it doesn't make a difference. Not that I'm talking about American Christianity at all. I mean, you just infer what you want to infer. <laughs> but Jesus is saying one of two things here. And maybe he's saying both. He's saying salt that isn't salty isn't really salt. It's a tongue twister, right? That's not Dr. Seuss, that's Jesus. Salt that isn't salty isn't really salt. Or salt that isn't salty has allowed the worries of life to dilute it and it's useless. And he's staring at his disciples after telling them that your love for me will have to be so sold out and 100% that everything else seems like hate. Then he tells them this. Whew. Listen, Jesus has no chill. He didn't mince words. Now, hear what he's saying and what he's not saying. This isn't a value or identity thing. He, Jesus isn't saying if you don't make enough impact or if you don't do enough good works, then you're useless. This isn't an earning thing. It's not what he's saying. In fact, that wouldn't fit into the next passage we're about to read at all if that were the case. He's saying, if you are salt, these things will be true in your life. So are they true? How do you know if you're salty? I, and I don't, I don't mean that you're bitter, right? Um, that's become like a, a slang in modern day language is he's salty. It means he's kind of bitter, he's kind of angry. In fact, all these Christian shirts came out and said, we're called to be salt, not salty. <laughs> You were called to be salty, just not that version, right? How do you know if we're salty? How do you know, believer? It's easy to self-deceive. How do you know if you're salty? Well, here's the first thing. What should stand out about your life? So something needs to stand out, according to Jesus, according to the Bible, according to what he's telling his disciples. He's looking at them, he's saying salt should be distinctive. It should stand out. So what should stand out about your life? Well, listen, it's not religious zeal because the Pharisees had plenty of that and he's about to have another run-in with them. It's not your morality. They were very moral. It's not your patriotism. They loved Israel. It's not your legalism. They were very legalistic. It's not mysticism. It's not knowledge. My goodness, the Pharisees had more biblical knowledge than you or I will ever have. So what's supposed to stand out? It's not a mystery. He tells his disciples... In John 13, 34 and 35, he gives them the specific instruction of what should stand out. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Your love for one another should be so distinctive that the world knows you follow Jesus, not because... You're super moral because of how well you love one another. 
the world will know you're his disciple and it will stand out. And he didn't leave it as an optional thing. Like, I hope you achieve this. It's a commandment. And at what level should we love one another? The way he loved us. So it is critical for us to work on learning to love each other the way Jesus loved us. Does that make sense? It's not enough for you to tolerate one another. Let me just tell you personally. It is not enough for me to tolerate you as a pastor in this church. It's not enough for me to be kind to you. It's not enough for me to pray for you. It's not enough for me to teach you well. It's not enough for me to work hard as a pastor. It's not enough. I have to love you. It has to burn inside of me. It has to keep me awake at night. It has to hurt. Because that's what happens when you love someone, amen? You have a relative that's far from the Lord? Does it hurt? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because you love them. And that's what Jesus has called us to. And what impact? What should stand out? We talked about that. But what impact? What type of impact should we have? Well, that's the rest of the passage. Jesus is about to explain this to his disciples. But he's going to tell us not only that we were called to an impact, but he's going to explain what that impact will look like. And I will tell you this, you have no power to make impact for the kingdom without being intimately connected to Jesus. John 15 will spell this out for you. You have no power to do this on your own. But what we're going to find is that we have different callings. We have different giftings. God will lead us into unique areas. Most of those will test our faith and they'll be incredibly anxious. But all of them will involve you and I serving other people. And most likely these will be the disenfranchised and the marginalized and the least of these. Because that's who Jesus served. All right, how are we gonna make an impact? You ready? You ready? Yeah. Woo, little lag here, it's like a delay. It's like I clicked it and it didn't go anywhere. Maybe my internet turned off or something. Okay. Parable of the lost sheep, verse 15. I mean, chapter 15, verse one. Here we go. In your Bibles, Luke 15, verse one. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Why is that a big deal? Well, let me tell you why it's a big deal. Jesus associating with sinners and the Pharisees not liking that is actually a common theme in the Gospels. In fact, just in Luke, we're gonna see the same thing happen in Luke 5, verse 30. We're gonna see it happen again in Luke 7, verse 39. And here we're seeing it again in Luke 15. So again and again, Jesus has this, this way, this, he's almost like a magnet. He is just drawing people in that are disenfranchised, that have been shunned by society in that time and they flock to Jesus and the Pharisees don't like it. They hate it, they grumble about it. They even go to his disciples at some point and challenge them. Why does your master do this? The Pharisees are all rapper and no candy. They're salt with no saltiness. They're religion without power and tradition without heart. 
In, in that time, to have a meal with someone, to be in their home or for you to be in, 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 uh, for, for you to be in their home or for them to be in your home, either way, to sit down and, and eat with them is to show a certain level of acceptance of them, like an identification, like I see you and I accept you. So you didn't sit down to a meal with someone. So it was a great honor if a Pharisee who had high status invited you to their home to eat with you. They were, they were identifying you. They were saying, I see you. They were giving you social acceptance. And yet Jesus is eating with the worst possible people. So, so, so that meal, even that association was not only just considered culturally uh, prohibited, it would tie all the way back to sort of a distorted rule from the Old Testament in which you could become ceremonially unclean because of your association with someone that was unclean because they clearly had to be unclean because they're sinners. Have you ever had someone tell you that they couldn't go to church because like, like you, don't, you don't know some of the stuff I've done, man, I can't go to church. Like, I'm so unclean, I can't go to church. You've heard that, right? You've heard that, right? But, but that is so contrary to Jesus who spends most of his time with sinners. Oh, you don't know what I've done. I, Jesus does. In that culture, this was a huge offense. Listen, in our culture, it's still kind of an offense. I mean, the Bible is incredibly clear about our responsibility when it comes to hospitality. Opening up our homes, sitting people at our kitchen tables again and again and again. We bring people into our homes. We open up our lives. We demonstrate that by opening up our homes. Now, listen, if you don't think that that is culturally become something that is very weird, you, you haven't been watching what's occurred in, in, in our country in the last five years. Like at this point, you don't even go to the drive-thru if you want fast food. You order it on an app and they don't even come in. Like you don't even have to talk to them when they bring the food. They just leave a bag and ring the doorbell and run away. And you check your app to see who it is. We don't, we, we're, we're a country of isolation and loneliness. And the Bible's like, nah, you're gonna open up your home. You're gonna sit them at your kitchen table and you're gonna eat a meal with them. It's gonna be weird. You're welcome. We live in such a strange and isolated world that these things seem to some of us foreign. Jesus associating with them meant he would have been ceremonially unclean and I'll be honest, Jesus did not care. Jesus almost never followed any of the ceremonial laws for cleanliness. He didn't worry about healing on the Sabbath. He didn't care that he would be considered unclean for loving the marginalized. But I will say this, and you should see this, you should notice this, you should take this to heart. To do gospel work means you're gonna get messy. Do you, do you hear me? You cannot do gospel work nice and neat and pristine. To, get, to do gospel work means to get messy. We have a growing conviction as elders, and you're gonna hear so much about this, about the 10 minute window around our campus about reaching people in the 10 minute window. And I'll just tell you, you better be ready to get messy. Because the people that are in need of Jesus don't have it all figured out. Neither do you and I. There's a great quote from 
uh, Miller and Larson kind of comparing the way Jesus is doing ministry and, and, and even, even the likelihood or the tendency that the church has to get a little too uh, bougie about themselves, you know what I mean? They say this, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to, to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace. Escape rather than reality. But it's permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and often they don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a couple beers. With all my heart, I believe Christ wants his church to be a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm done, I'm beat, I've had it, I just can't. So Jesus is gonna tell us a parable, that's just a story, to help them, the disciples, the Pharisees, and us, and whomever would listen, to help us get an idea of what it looks like to have Jesus' heart, how he sees us. What do we look like to Jesus? How do we make an impact for the kingdom? Well, let's look at that. Verse three. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I want to walk through this, this story with you, why Jesus is telling it to them and, and, and what he's trying to say in here. And there's some hyperbole. Uh, it, it would not at all have been common. It would have been common for a shepherd to, to leave 99 sheep, probably in a little pen or with another shepherd, to go after a lost sheep. That actually would have been very common. A hundred is about the size of a flock that a shepherd back in that time would have, would have managed. Um, it would not at all have been normal for them to throw a party when they came back with one sheep. That's a weird thing. There's definitely some hyperbole in there. So we want to note the difference and, and, and understand why Jesus is adding that to the story in just a second. But let me explain the first part. And I think this is where our church, not our specific church, but just churches in general, oftentimes really miss the boat. And that's this. Um, are the 99 sheep still important? So you see, oftentimes when you as a church when, when I as a church, when I as a believer, when, a, when any church begins to really put this heavy emphasis to matching the heart of Christ and beginning to run after the lost sheep and running after the marginalized, sometimes what you hear is like, well, what about us? Aren't we important? You're important. Say, I'm important. Jesus loves you. He chased after you. He redeemed you. The 99 are important. Chasing after the one sheep does not mean that the 99 sheep are not important. It does not decrease their value in any way. 
And oftentimes, as churches have put a heavy emphasis toward how can we change what we do so that we can run after people that are far from God, you will hear people say, well, why would we change for them? What about us? Aren't we important? Yes. Yes, but, but you know Jesus. And there are still men and women today that do not. And Jesus is trying to explain the difference. So don't misunderstand that wanting to chase after someone far from God has anything to do with devaluing those of you that know Jesus. But one sheep, one sheep could cause a shepherd to, to, to leave a 99, to run after them, to seek for them, and then to find them, to celebrate such an extent that all of heaven would rejoice? Why would one person be that important? Let me explain. If you don't understand the biblical worldview of how Jesus sees you, you, one person, let me explain. Number one, you're important. And that person who's far from God is important because you were made in the image of God. You are an image bearer of God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he says this, the Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Humans are unlike any other created thing on earth, and we know that because the Bible tells us so. You and you alone, as a human, are an image bearer of the God that created everything. And because of that, the Bible tells us that you have a value unlike any other created thing. In Genesis 9.6, the Bible will tell us that one of the, the, the primary reasons that murder is absolutely so detestable to God is that you are killing an image bearer. So murder in the Bible wasn't wrong because of some subjective morality. Murder was wrong because of the objective morality that you are taking the life of something that has the image of God. This is why, if you believe the Bible, you are absolutely so grieved by abortion. You're not grieved by abortion because you want to, to take away women's rights. You're grieved by abortion because something that has the very image of God is being murdered. It's not a political issue at its core for the Christian. For the Christian, it is a matter of image bearers and their inherent value to God, and if they are valuable to God, then they have to be valuable to you and I. Do, do you understand that? Jesus would say, you've got to learn to love each other like you love me, and I love humanity because they are image bearers of me. So that unborn baby in the womb has value. That, that person dealing with gender problems that's far from God, they have value. That person living in squalor has value. That person with terrible morals that you, you just like, I can't believe their decision making, but they have value. And they have to have value to you and I because they have value to our Father. 
We are made in the image of God, so we're important. But secondly, God desires all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says it this way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, and this will be repeated. You can go to uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, go to a number of, of verses in, in the New Testament where it says uh, God desires for people who are far from him to know him. In fact, we'll go further than that. Not only does God desire that of all men, but that's exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came for the lost. He tells you that with his own lips. So so we're valued because we're image bearers and we're valued because God wants to save people and we're valued because Jesus came to this earth to save people. Luke 19, 10. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. These three truths, that we are image bearers of God, that God wants to save all men and that Jesus came to seek that which was lost. These three truths are buried in this story that Jesus is trying to get across to Pharisees who are sitting with their arms crossed being, how can you talk to them? Because they have value. How can you associate with them? Because they have value. This is the line, this is the, the one, if you take away nothing else from today, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples who are following him, to Pharisees who aren't following him and want nothing to do with him but, but want to judge him, and to you and I who will sit in these pews in very different places, maybe you know God, maybe you don't, but this is the takeaway. Jesus wants you to treasure people the way that he sees them. To treasure people, he treasures you. He came to die for you. This was not a flippant thing. This was not, well, I hope you get, I mean, we do this with people. Man, I hope he figures it out. You can be quiet, but I guarantee you, you've thought that about somebody. Amen? I didn't mean today, but maybe that happened. But at some point, you've looked at someone who's making terrible decisions, you're doing something stupid or whatever, and you're like, hope they figure it out. Jesus loves them. He treasures them. They matter. They matter to Jesus, therefore they have to matter to us. I, I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was just sitting in my office and I was just reading and, and doing some work and, and God started to really, really talk to me. And there's times in my life where I felt like God is almost audibly talking to me. Like he is, he is just overwhelmingly talking to me. And, uh, and he's just asking me again and again, Daniel, do you, do you love people the way I love them? And I want to answer yes, you know, like, yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. Do, do you really love them? And, I, and, you know, in your mind, you're kind of thinking about people you really love. Me. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no, but what about the difficult ones? <laughs> I just, again and again, until God brought me to tears, just weeping, trying to impress upon me how much he loves people that I don't really love. It's so funny because I, I think most of us, at least we would say this if we were asked, we'd at least get that far. If someone asks us, do, do you wanna make an impact for the kingdom of God? I think most of us would be like, yeah, yeah. We, we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the woman at the well and Jesus looks as the, the people are coming out of that Samaritan town because they've heard about him and they're all coming, right? And he looks and he tells his disciples, 
The fields are white for harvest. Remember that? You guys here? Yes? No? Five of you? Awesome. Thanks. The fields are, are just right. Like the harvest is ready. The workers are few. You've, you guys, do, do you know when people, when, do you know when the harvest is ripe for people coming to the Lord? It's when the sheep begin to realize they're lost. You see, for most of the people that we know, and maybe for our own lives too, before we came to Christ, uh, most of that time, we didn't actually know we were lost. We thought we had it figured out. I thought I had it all figured out. Do you not think you had it figured out at some point in your life? Yes. I mean, at some point we were like, <laughs> if people knew what I knew, I mean, gosh. But, but there's some point where, where God graciously brings us to the point, the bottom, where we just go, oh no, I, there, and you know, you know you're lost. And that's where God gets to do work. Here's the problem. You and I can't determine when a person gets to that point in their life. Therefore, if we want to participate in this work, and if we want to treasure people the way God treasures them, we have to be involved in their life early enough that when they get to that point, we're there. Do you hear me? That, that means there, there are going to be times where, where we're investing in people's lives and we're walking with them and it is hard and, and they don't get to that point for years. And there are going to be times you walk with them and they never get to that point. But oh, the moment you get to be there when they realize they're lost. Last week we had someone come up to commit their life to Christ. And listen to me. All of heaven through a party. And we got to participate in that. You and I, sinners, got to participate in that. We got to be a part of his work. He didn't have to include us. He chose to. We're gonna to have to do four things if this matters to you. And if it doesn't matter to you, I, 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 can't, I can't make you love Jesus, I can't. If I could, if I could hit you with a stick, you'd all be sore. <laughs> I can't make you love him, but I can tell you from reading the Bible that if you love him, you will start to love other people. That's just the way it is. There's no such thing, according to the Bible, of loving God and not loving his treasured ones. So if we want to do this, if we want to make this kind of impact, if we want to go after the one, you're going to have to do four things. You ready? None of you. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Number one, if I want to go after the one, I'm going to have to get over myself going to have to get over myself. Man, I'm going to have to get over myself. Let me tell you why I'm going to have to get over myself. Um, Generally speaking, the sheep is not searching for me. Do you know what I'm saying? The reason Jesus uses the story that he's using is because generally speaking, you don't just get to sit there, do the things you like to do, have the hobbies that you like to have, live in comfort for the rest of your life, and all of the lost sheep find you. That would be very convenient. But that's not what happens. 
If you want to participate in kingdom work, you're going to have to look for the sheep. So it's not gonna be about you. Even though you're part of the 99, even though you're treasured, even though the Lord loves you, the focus of what's happening is on the one, not on the 99. And you and I are gonna have to be okay with the focus not being on us. So we gotta get over ourselves. It's gotta be enough that Jesus loves me, that he saved me, that I get him. That's gotta be enough. It can't also be that I need all the attention too. Gotta get over myself. Number two, I have to stop holding on to methods and preferences. I've gotta stop doing that. Let me give you an example. Um, a couple hundred years ago, because of the way uh, the, the, the country was expanding, um, there weren't a lot of churches. And so what you'd have is you'd have a preacher who uh, made almost nothing, barely, barely could get by. He would have usually a side job and make a bunch of money. And he'd ride a horse from area to area. And when he got there, you'd have church service. But, but he might have two, three, five, seven different ch church bodies as he would ride his little horse to the next place where he would then minister. Well, here's what's amazing. Fast forward 30 to 50 years, and I'm not kidding, there were literally people, because they had experienced revival at that, at that time, or they'd experienced some goodness of God, or God had moved in this incredible, powerful way, that they went, you know, if we want God to move again, what we gotta do is pay the pastor less and get him on a horse. Wait, what? Yeah, because when God moved last time, remember, he was on horseback. But do you see the problem, right? Now, we laugh at that, and we think, man, that's funny, and it is, but we do that. We do that. I had a great time in Awana, and so we'll go, listen, God can't work if we don't do Awana. You know, you're going, I don't think it works that way. They haven't had Awana that long. You know what I'm saying, right? Or you, 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 you get caught up in a method. I had someone tell me, I'm not joking, and they were with conviction, I mean emotional. If you don't have an adult Sunday school, no one can learn how to read the Bible. I didn't want, they were, like, they were so emotional, I didn't want to disagree, but I was like, I don't think that's true. Pretty sure it's only been around about 150 years. Somehow we figured out how to read the Bible before then. But I didn't want to say that. So I just was like, oh, okay. But what happens is we have experienced God in power show up and pour out on his congregation and change lives, but it's in our past, and we want that again, and we go, you know what I gotta do? I gotta recreate the past. If I'll just re recreate the past, it'll happen again. That doesn't work. You know why? The people that you want to go chase after aren't the same people anymore. It's new people. It's new people. Do you know who lives around this church? Not many of you do, because not many of you live right around this church, and it's not your neighborhood. We're going to change that. But it's going to take two more things. So we're going to have to get over ourselves. We're going to have to stop holding on to methods and preferences. Number three, you ready? You want to figure it out? Going to get messy. It's going to get messy. You can't chase after sheep and not get in the mud gonna get messy. You know why? 
Sheep are messy. Man, they, they bite. They're messy little creatures. It's going to get messy. It's going to be difficult. You can't do life with other humans and it not get messy. And fourth, if we want to chase the one, we've got to find out what they're interested in. Because they're not coming to us. We, we, we don't live in the culture anymore uh, of the, that was true probably in the 50s and certainly was true in the 80s, where if you could turn on a certain amount of just kind of services on a church campus, people would just sort of flock to it. Guys, it's 2023. The fact that we're a church actually repels people. It's, it, that's just the culture we live in. It is dark, it is distorted, and it is far from God. And if you want to change that, let's go chase some sheep. But they're not flocking here. They don't just show up. Not very often. You got to go find them. You know how you go find them? You find out what they're interested in. I know this is going to seem very common sense, but typically I don't just do the things I like to do and hope that all the lost people show up. I go figure out what they like to do and I do it with them. I've told the story, but about 10 years ago, my wife and I, because we, we, we love the Lord and we're kind of growing in the Lord, trying to figure out what it looks like to mature spiritually, and so we've surrounded ourselves with, with, with Christian people and Christian mentorship and Christian pastors and Christian things and watching Christian TV. I'm using the word Christian a lot, and you're going to see the pattern here. Uh, and then I got Christians at my work and I spent all my time at church and ministering and going to classes and going to Bible studies and going to small groups and volunteering at the church. And then I looked at my wife at one point and go, do you know anyone that doesn't know Jesus? And she's like, I think I got a cousin. I mean, like that's, that's that bad. I'm not kidding. We, like, we went in inventory, and I was like, oh, we don't spend any time with people that don't know Jesus at, at all. And where do we have any margin in our life to do it? It's filled up. Well, I would say, we got to change something. How else are we ever going to, how are we going to share the gospel if everybody knows the gospel that you know? Like, it's going to get really awkward at the cash register at Walmart. It could be why they went to self-checkout. They're tired of me. And so we, we, we joined a CrossFit gym. This, and we joined a CrossFit gym I'm, I'm, so that we could meet people that didn't know Jesus. And guess what? Whoa, we met them. <laughs> Woo! Quickly and vividly. And, and, and then in the course of five years, five years, just doing CrossFit, we saw 17 people come to church. But, I, like, why? Well, we finally found some lost people. <laughs> and we figured out what they were interested in. We weren't. We, I, we, I wasn't sitting around going, you know, it'd be great. Whatever that is. <laughs> I was like, I think there's lost people there. And we should go. And we did. And we met people. And we got to share with them that Jesus is amazing. You got to find them. You got to figure out what they're interested in. You got to figure out where they're at because the, the sheep aren't searching for us, guys. The sheep, uh, they don't necessarily have our hobbies or our preferences or our morals or our traditions. They don't. If you want to reach them, you're going to have to go after them. If you, if you don't want to reach them, I would just ask you, are you still salty? Because 
Part of what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's telling his disciples, and he's discipling them, but at the same time, he is indicting the Pharisees. He's saying, listen, you say you have zeal for religion, but you don't. In fact, he'll go further in Matthew. I'm just gonna read to you Matthew's view of very religious people that have no heart for others. It's this. Matthew 23, 23 to 28, I'm gonna read six verses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We have a choice. We have a choice. We can be about our daddy's business, or we can be about our own business. And I do not want to be in the group that Jesus is reprimanding. Like I just refuse to and it's my ego and it's my flesh and it's my desire for comfort that screams at wanting me to just live selfishly. But God will not leave me alone. Man, he has been good to me by just being incessant with me. He wakes me up in the middle of the night. He brings me to tears in my office. He's constantly asking me to compare my heart to his. Not to feel bad about myself, but to get me hungry and urgent and on mission. So we have a choice. We have an opportunity. Within 10 minutes of our campus, if you just take 10 minutes and you draw a circle, there are 147,000 people. In that 147,000 people, only 19% of them attend church regularly. 81% of 147,000 people within 10 minutes of this campus do not go to church. They're young. Only 16% of that 147,000 people are in the generations older than my generation. That means that 84% of those people are my age or younger. They're poor. The median income of that 147,000 people is $40,000. That is substantially below the national average. They're relatively uneducated. Only 13% have any sort of higher education. They travel for work to find work. They travel over 15 minutes on average or longer to get to work. They're living here because they're poor and rent is cheap. They're in multi-generational houses that is clearly on the rise where two, three, four, five generations of families now live in the same residence because of housing costs. They're young, they're unchurched, they're poor. They're actually quite liberal. 40% are Democrats, 44% are uh, independents, only 19% are Republicans. You're not gonna win them over with your politics. You're not gonna win them over with your traditions or your morals. We're gonna have to go find them. We're gonna have to find out what they're interested in. We're gonna have to figure out what their needs are. We're gonna have to meet their needs. And in meeting their needs, maybe we will be there when they realize they're lost. That would be a great day. That's the opportunity. I do not believe that God has taken our church through the last six and a half years of trials and difficulties, 
of uniting us together, of teaching us how to love one another, of granting us these resources and facilities, about putting the money in the bank that he put in from the sale of property, about putting the leaders in place that he put in, about putting you in your seat where you're at so that we could sit here with a fence around this campus and wait till Jesus comes back. He put us here so we can go find sheep. To do that, we're gonna get messy. We're gonna figure out what they need. We're gonna figure out where they're hurting. We're gonna do life with them. And we're gonna hope that we're there on the day they realize they're lost. It's the opportunity before us. But Jesus would say that if he left us here and he hasn't put us in heaven yet, that we're here for a reason. We're here for a mission. And we have two choices. I'm gonna read you two poems today as we conclude our service. The first is called $3 worth of God. It's about being comfortable. Because this is the choice before us, whether or not we want God to make us urgent. You may not be urgent for people today, and I would tell you I know exactly how that feels. It's been a good part of my Christian life, not being urgent about anyone other than myself. And I had to ask God to make me urgent. I had to pray for it. $3 worth of God. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. It was Wilbur Rees. Or, let me read you another poem. This is uh, Sir Francis Drake in 1577. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, and hope and love attributed to Sir Francis Drake in 1577. We have a choice. By nature, by the flesh, you and I are going to desire to stay comfortable. It's a normal desire. It's very natural. We're human and we're sinful. But we can choose to ask God to disturb us. We can choose to pray and ask God to make us urgent and give us a heart like his. And in doing so, he can begin to grow and build in us an urgency to go find those that are far from him. And he would tell us in his Bible that doing so is a reflection of his own heart. It actually is what it means to be salty. So if you'll bow your head with me, I'm gonna pray over our service and then I'm gonna have a time of invitation, both because we would love to pray with you and for you for anything, But also, I would love it if you took the opportunity to speak with God, whether in your seat or here at the altar, and ask him to disturb you, to make you hungry, to want the things he wants. Father God, we thank you 
for this congregation and this people and this time, for this church, for its campus and its people, for its tone and its love, God, for the experience that you have brought to us, the things you have brought us through and the things you have for us, God. Will you make us hungry to reach those who are far from you, God? Will you disturb us? Will you not leave us the same? Will you not let us stay comfortable? God, will you take us into the neighborhoods and the houses, God, to the schools, to the recovery centers, to the homeless shelters? God, will you take us into these messy places to reach those for you? Will you use us? God, we thank you that you use someone to find us. God, that each of us only sits here today because you pursued us. You left the 99 for us. God, we desire to be a church that has the same heart as you have, that wants to make an impact for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Our elders and prayer team are gonna be up here. Please stand while we sing this song. And I wanna encourage you to use this time to pray to the Lord, to make you urgent. You move as the Lord leads you.